Welcome to the VoxGig podcast. We talk to people in the developer community about developer relations, public speaking, and community events. For more details, visit voxgig.com podcast. All right, let's get started. I'm speaking to Alex Lakatos from interledger.org. This one is really interesting because we are talking about developer relations from the perspective of a nonprofit organization that still offers an API and SDKs. We talk about the importance of open protocols in building up the community that uses the Interledger system. And we talk about the importance of mission for driving adoption. Alex, welcome to the Fireside with VoxGig podcast. I believe you are our first nonprofit developer relations interviewee. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, Richard. It's good to be here. Awesome. So, okay. So, uh, I'm, I'm really happy to have you because uh, the organization that you work for, interledger.org, um, does some really, really interesting stuff. And as we were just talking about <laughs> prior to me pressing record, doesn't involve blockchain. So, it's actually completely legit. Um, but you want to take it from the top. Uh, you're the CTO, but explain from the very basics, what Interledger does. Okay, so we'll, we'll go with the, with the origin story. And uh, about eight, nine years ago, um, the USA put Pakistan on a ban list. So the, one of the inventors of Interledger suddenly found themselves without the ability to pay his developer in Pakistan because of Pakistan as a country being put on a shit list. And he went through and tried to pay this person because they were a good developer and they didn't want to lose it just because it, was, it wasn't easy to make payments. And it turns out the world of payments is not easy. Eight, nine years ago, even less easier than today, right? So they sat there and they thought, why won't payments work like the internet in the age of the internet? It's easy to send an email halfway across the world, right? Why can't I send a payment just as easy as I send an email? So that's how the idea for Interledger was born. A way to pay anyone, anywhere across the world without having to figure out how many bank systems there are in between you and them, how many different addressing formats you have to figure out. If you think about it, if I wanted to pay you today, I have to first figure out how your bank represents accounts, how to find a bank in my country that will actually deliver the money to your bank. It's a process that if we're in the same country, it's easy. And with all these faster payment systems today, it might take minutes for the money to arrive. If it's between two countries that talk to each other, like, I know, the US and the UK, right? It's easy to send money from one to the other, even though the accounting system or the account numbers look different. That's because the countries have a working relationship and there's a lot of money moving across. If I try to do the same relatively close, so from my bank in the UK to my mom's little bank in Romania, it takes 72 hours. And that's because the UK left the EU. They don't talk on the same banking system anymore system anymore. So the UK bank will send some money to a bank somewhere in the EU, wherever they get better rates, and that bank in the EU will then deposit money into my mom's bank account in Romania, because there's no connection between 
my bank in the UK and my mom's bank in Romania. So they came up with a solution for making payments behave like the internet. So the Interledger protocol is what they come up, came up with. And you'll notice I called it a protocol because that's what Interledger was or that's what Interledger is uh, on day one. It's a bunch of words on a piece of paper, a set of rules that describe how a network of interconnected ledgers would work, hence the name Interledger. It was a protocol designed to make ledgers talk to each other. And now here's where the confusion comes from, and that's why we had the conversation before we started recording. Ledger for us does not mean crypto. Ledger means what ledgers used to be before crypto was a thing, which used to be this giant book of accounts, a physical book where you recorded balances and transactions for people. Banks have one, Starbucks has one, for example. A bunch of other institutions will have a ledger where they keep balances for people and record transactions. So Interledger was designed as a protocol to make these the separate ledgers talk to each other when they couldn't talk to each other. So if you think about Starbucks, for example, if I want to move money out of my Starbucks account into my bank account, that is not possible because the Starbucks ledger does not talk to any other bank ledgers, right? The only way to move money is one directional and it goes bank, card system, Starbucks account, and it never goes out. So Interledger was designed to create this messaging and clearing layer between these the separate ledgers that don't talk to each other. And that's how Interledger was born. Now, if you look at the protocol deep, deep down, it highly resembles the TCPIP protocol. The TCPIP protocol is the one that powers the network of computers that talk to each other, which we lovingly refer to as the internet today. So it was literally designed to be, in a similar fashion, the protocol that made it possible to have an internet of money or an internet of value. Okay, I, I, the first question, that's, that all sounds really cool, right? So <laughs> I'm glad it's not blockchain. Um, but. Who participates in the network? Do do local banks, you know, build software? So we have the ledger, or or, or uses the ledger protocol, or are there agents? So, so because it's because it's a, a bunch of words on a piece of paper, right? Anybody can implement it in their accounting ledger and start talking to other accounting ledgers that talk the same language, right? Now, if you think about TCP/IP, though, you don't really implement TCPIP from scratch today, right? So you have a bunch of tools that were created to work for it and everybody uses the same tooling. That's what we do at the foundation, right? We build the tooling level or the tooling layer that allows you to use Interledger without sinking a bunch of money in implementing the protocol. Something you'll end up doing once, right? Uh, we, we provide this tooling layer, which we, we, we give you reference implementations, um, that you can put into your into your system, connect it to your ledger, and it suddenly becomes Interledger enabled. So, so far on the network, so the uh, institutions who are speaking Interledger are startups. So you can imagine digital wallets having this issue. When you're trying to exchange value between digital wallets, let's say I have dollars and you have, let's do some exotic currency like, Naira, for example, right? You've got Nigerian Naira, I've got dollars. How do we send money to each other? Or I've got pounds, even worse, I've got pounds. 
we have to find somebody who can exchange my pounds for dollars. They can send dollars to you, and then you can take the dollars and convert it into Naira. Digital wallets run into this issue all the time. So for them, a protocol that could do currency conversion on the fly was something that they were very interested in. Because if all of this math that we did between us, the protocol just goes, all right, I know of a different ledger in my network that can exchange pounds to dollars and that can output Naira. So I'm going to route the connection through this third third node, third ledger in the network, do the currency conversion and deposit Naira, Naira at the other end. And all of this math, instead of us having to figure it out, the protocol does it in about 200 milliseconds because it's the speed of the internet. So a bunch of a bunch of digital wallets are on the network or are implementing the protocol. Now, we've also grant system at the Intelligent Foundation where we grant people and projects so that they can research and explore and experiment with Interledger. We've got 12 in the process right now. If you go to community.interledger.org, all of the active grantees will submit grant reports periodically with that progress. And in those batch of 12 grantees that we have right now, we have anywhere from small digital wallets in, I know, Africa, the banks and banking systems across the world, like Mexico, for example. Um, so Mexico has this conglomerate of cooperative banks that associated together in what they call the People's Clearing House. And then, then people who are trying to put Interledger into their stack so that they can take advantage of the U.S.-Mexico corridor and send money from the U.S. to Mexico using Interledger. So the, the network is expanding, and part of the, the, the foundation mission is to expand the network, right? The network is expanding, but in the banking world or in the money world, expansion doesn't look like I signed up, I clicked the button, and I did my first transaction within a minute or so, right? Yeah, yeah. Between I started doing this and I went live, I think uh, a fast turnaround would be, I don't know, 12 to 18 months. That would be fast. Some other banking systems, only the due diligence of putting a new piece of software in will take 18 months before any line of code is implemented, just the due diligence. And that's how the banking system works. And in the banking system, a week is a magical reference that can be anywhere between a month and a year. Next week can be anywhere between a month and a year. So the, the network is expanding, but because we're just at the beginning of this. So the Interledger protocol was created in 2016. The foundation was, and it was, um, that was, that was Interledger V1 2016. And it's been road tested and improved upon until we landed at Interledger V4, the current version of the, of the protocol. And that's been stable for, I think about four years now. And that's what is in production today at Digital Wallets around. Right. It, it sounds, so we should move on to the developer relations aspect of all this, which is, I'm also very interested in. But I have one final question just on Interledger itself. So the protocol sounds like it, what would now be considered sort of traditional peer-to-peer. -peer. So how do you handle the trust issues? How, how do you handle bad actors and... Um, you know, getting that's a very good sure money will, will actually end up in the right place. That's a very good question. In in the initial intelligent days, it was 
It was designed to be peer-to-peer. But you have trust issues on one hand, and you have KYC and AML regulations on the other hand. Uh, For people at home who have never heard about this, KYC stands for Know Your Customer, and AML stands for Anti-Money Laundering. So governments and banks around the world have all these regulations in place in order to protect people. So before you move money from point A to point B, right, you need to be a licensed institution so that Intel Edge, the network today, in order to join the network, you can't be an individual. A single developer can go, okay, I'm going to join the Intel Edge. A single developer can use the APIs provided by the institution or the account servicing entity who is on Intel Edge and is providing an account for them. So in order to join the network and peer with somebody, we actually call it a peering relationship, you have to have a legally binding agreement in place that describes your peering relationship. So it's not just a software connection. The software connection is two lines of code in a config file. But before you can do that, you have to have an actual legal agreement that says how the peering relationship is going to work. I really, because if you think yeah. about it, I really we're like going to exchange money. Yeah, yeah. That's that's the way to solve it. I, I mean, I remember back in the day reading about all these peer-to-peer protocols. And people would drive themselves crazy trying to come up with technical solutions for trust. But, uh, you know, we have 5,000 years of legal systems <laughs> to fall back on. That's how the normal banking system works anyway. Um, you know, that's that's all yeah. you need, right? Just Yeah, use- exactly that. So you have a legal agreement in place, and that's that's what governs the 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 peering relationship. So because of this, right, that's why adoption is a 12, 12 to 16 month to 18 month curve, because not only do you have to put the tech inside. You also have to involve your legal teams and your due diligence and compliance in order to create that legal agreement. Okay, okay. So let's move on to DevRel because from what you just said, my very first question on DevRel uh, is now, I'm an individual developer and I want to play with Interledger. Do you, do you guys provide a sandbox account? You know, and I, if I yes, just yes. as an individual, what do I do? So, so that's that's... That's one of the, the very interesting uh, interesting questions, and I feel like a better question is firstly, how do you do DevRel for something like that, right? Yes, it's not your yes. typical API. It's not your typical product. As a as a, an individual, you can't spin up an interledger connection to real money. Right? So we provide we provide the test network. Uh, if you think about interledger as a networking protocol that is a protocol between ledgers, it kind of makes sense to spin up a test network, not to test account or a test sandbox. So it's a whole network with test money. Uh, we have launched, we have, have actually launched the first node last week. I think today is the first day when it's up. So if you go to rafiki.money, you will see the test network. You'll be able to sign up for an account. You'll be able to move money from one account to the other. And one of the things Interledger does, right? If you think about Interledger, it's the lower level of the stack, TCPIP. It's the linking protocol between ledgers. At the application layer, it says nothing about the application layer, right? Plugs into applications, but it says nothing about the application layer. But we wanted to give individuals or accounts that are serviced by Interledger the ability to do something more than say, I'm Interledger enabled. If you think about Visa and MasterCard, right? 
as a developer, they don't give you access to anything. You have a card that's plastic, sits in a wallet, and as a developer, you can do nothing with it. Uh, I might be a bit bitter and, and, and disappointed because I used to work with Visa and MasterCard previously, yeah. and we were trying to get transaction data from them for cards, right? So you swipe a card in, in a shop, Visa knows about it instantly because they do this authorization check. They see you have enough money in the card. They block the, the money into your account. And then at 1 a.m. every day, they start the money movement from your card to somebody else's card or the merchant account. And then 72 hours later, the money arrives, you have finality. And we were trying to get all this transaction data, right? Because when you swipe, when you swipe a card, there's a bunch of use cases that would be enabled by getting the data when a user of yours or a customer of yours swipes a card. For example, loyalty programs, right? You want to see when you bought something that you got the points instantly. So the the way the way Visa does this is for every single country or jurisdiction in the world, you have to pay a quarter of a million dollars. And then 18 months later, you get your first transaction back. And the way they deliver transactions is you set up an SFTP bucket and every morning at 2 a.m. after the clearing window has has finished at like 2 a.m., you will get a drop, a TXT file in the SFTP bucket, which you have to then wow. download, process, unpack. Sometimes it's gigabytes worth of text file. And we thought that level of developer friendliness was something we actively tried to avoid. So we have this higher level specification which we call the open payment apis which sits on intellij enabled accounts and it allows you to do delegated access into interledger accounts so if you think about apple pay right you put your card into apple pay you get a new card and then the new card is kind of like a proxy into your into your actual account and you can use apple pay anywhere in the world and your underlying account gets charged by Apple Pay. So we came up with something similar. Uh, the only difference is we use something called GNAP, the Grand Negotiation and Authorization Protocol, which allows us to be way more granular about the level of access you give people into your account. If you think Apple Pay, Apple Pay is all or nothing, right? Apple Pay has access to the entire account and can make transactions on the account for as long as it wants, for as much as it wants, right? With GNAP and the Open Payment APIs, we give people granular access to say things like, I want this third party to have access to $5 out of my account every month because I've subscribed to it. Or I want this third party, like Apple Pay, to only get access to $200 a month. That is my limit for how much I'm gonna spend here as many transactions as it needs, as often as it needs, but with a limit of $200, right? That's the cutoff point that I wanna spend more than $200 here. So we have these open payment APIs, right? Which sit on IntelliJ enabled accounts and we bake this into the software that we provide. So instead of people having to re-implement this, this open API specification from scratch, the software we provide for people to be easy to, to, to integrate with IntelliJ, we put that on top. And that is where the developer comes in, right? That is the thing every developer can build against. So the testnet enables these open payment APIs on the testnet accounts, and it allows you to build against those APIs. To build applications that use this application level API and makes your app, your, your entire app, IntelliJ, 
IntelliJ supported, powered by IntelliJ. We call that powered by IntelliJ. And that is where the DevRel function come in, comes in, right? We have we have DevRel that targets APIs like any other company. The only difference is instead of us being the API provider, every single wallet on the network is the API provider. So your APIs, your 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 applications work the same, no matter which API you're targeting, because all the APIs look the same, right? Uh, but we also, as a as an open source foundation, we do DevRel in a similar fashion to how Uber does it, right? Think of the Uber DevRel model. They have DevRel for two things. They're open source projects. So Uber has a multitude of open source projects, nothing public that you can use as a developer, but the developer relations team targets those open source projects as contributors to bring in contributors. The, the goal of the DevRel team is to bring in contributors that help them develop this open source software that they go and use in Uber. And yeah. the other one is they use DevRel as a recruitment tool, right? Yes. You see something very cool that's built by Uber, you want to work on that very cool thing, and then, oh, we have trained people who can build this for us, let us hire them. So we use the DevRel function in a similar way. That's why you've probably seen on Twitter, um, last night, this morning, I was updating the website, and I just realized how many people we've brought in. All of those people are community people, or we've We've touched base with them on, in, in our community or they were in our orbit somehow and they knew about IntelliJ because of our community work. And when they applied, it was easy to recognize the people who were highly engaged and invested in our You're in so our right, Alex. You're so right. I mean, it's, it's, I haven't spoken to a recruiter in 14 years. Um, <laughs> this company and previous ones, and we're talking, you know, pretty big companies, over 100 people, uh, we hired from our open source communities. That was it. Yes, exactly, exactly that. And if you think, so a, a, a very interesting thing happened. So when I joined the, the IntelliJ Foundation, because it was a very small foundation, I want to call myself CTO because I was a CTO without the team. And I said, I wouldn't call myself a CTO until I actually had a team I could be very proud of. And then we we do that. And you've seen the, if you look at LinkedIn, I think the title change happened earlier this year when I was very happy with the things we were building. And I felt like I this was the moment to make this. Swap. Congratulations. But you when I started, <laughs> thank you so much. When I started, my title was very, very abstract. It was a technology leader. And if you're in the developer world, oh, you think tech lead. That wasn't it. If you're in the world of non-developers and you hear technology leader, you think, oh, the person who's leading the technology bit here at the IntelliJ Foundation. So yeah. I, I, I didn't want to have that, that, title, that, that title change in the beginning. But as part of that mashup, I've realized that I didn't get the Intelligent Foundation by being recruited. I got here by being approached by some people who see my work. But also, ever since the title change, I've, I've been approached by a bunch of recruiting companies or recruiters who would like to help me hire. <laughs> yeah. I was like, okay, oh, yeah. we're hiring, we're expanding. What does this help actually entail? And, 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 uh, what does this help actually entail? And uh, recruiters are extremely, extremely expensive. I think the lowest quote I got was 
20% of the annual yeah, salary right? for a role and it goes up to like 30-35% depending on depending on how exotic the role is or how much experience is based in the role or whatever. And I was like, why would I use recruiters? I can't afford to use recruiters that they are extremely, extremely expensive. I cannot afford to use them. If I if I had so we've hired maybe nine people this year. It would make more financial sense to create a DevRel team, exactly, whose sole purpose was to help recruit, yes. than to hire those recruiters. I've I've put in proposals to large large organizations to do exactly that, right? And you you do the maths and you say, you know, twenty percent of a, a developer salary, right? So, um, for for the cost of five hires, and you're hiring fifty this year, you can have a developer relations person. It brings in people for free, right? Exactly uh, that, yeah. And look at the mathematics. My sole job isn't to, to bring in people. They do so many other things for you, as opposed to a recruiter whose only job is to bring in people, right? Your developer community for you. There's awareness. They they represent you into the world. The recruiter doesn't really represent you into the world. They're not going to have any sort of loyalty to you as a company, right? But your oh, exactly. team will have all of that. Alex, as as a as a now CTO, uh, and you had worked in developer relations before, so the question I want to ask you is, uh, what did you learn when you develop relations previously? What have you brought to this role and how are you running, how do you run the developer relations activity in Interledger? Who does it? Is it a little team separate from the other developers? How does it all fit together for Interledger? Oh, that's a very good question. So I started in DevRel in 2015, 2016, 2016, I think. Oh. Old. Uh, so I started in DevRel back then because I was a developer and I was volunteering for Mozilla. And, and as part of my volunteering for Mozilla, I was speaking in public about web technologies and Mozilla was, they had this program called the Mozilla Tech Speakers. And they used to pay for travel and accommodation to go around and speak about web technology because it was easier for them to do that than to hire a massive DevRel team that had to crisscross the globe. It was easy to have these people in regions and send us to Europe. So for example, I was in the UK, it was easy for me to go anywhere in Europe rather than somebody from the U UK, US to fly over uh, and, and speak at this conference. So I started doing that and then I realized one day I liked doing that more than I liked going to the office. And that is when I met Legator and the next Modevral team. Legator was just setting up the next Modevral team, uh, the the, art, the artist formerly known as Nexmo. I think they're called Vonage now. They're still called Vonage, even though they got acquired by Ericsson, I think. But Legator was setting up that team. There were four people in the team so far. And I think I was number four, actually. And they needed somebody who did developer relations for JavaScript. And I didn't think I could do it. And then Legator sat me down and said, you're doing a lot of the things in DevRel. You're just not getting paid for it. Yeah. Don't you think it's time somebody would pay pay you for it? Just totally let happy. me pay you for it. I was like, okay, fine. Fine, we'll, we'll do this thing. So I joined the, the Nexmo DevRel team, and we grew from four to 42. So I stayed with them for about three years. And when I left, we were 42. Wow. And that's where I learned 
how to DevRel. That's when I learned what DevRel was all about. And it wasn't because it was all written down or because like, I had it all figured out. Um, no, that's because we, we learned by doing it. We learned by making mistakes and doing, doing things and seeing if it worked or not. And if it didn't, trying something else. So when I left, we were 42. And uh, I feel like we all built that, that DevRel team. It was, a, it was a joint effort. It was a group effort. And it was one of the biggest DevRel teams in the industry. I feel like the only people back then who had a bigger DevRel team were probably Twilio, Microsoft, Google. And I think that's about it. Uh, and after that, I went into solo DevRel. I was like, I want to set up my own pro program, DevRel program. Some people who worked in the cart industry approached me and said, come build developer relations for us. And I wanted to take that challenge. But when I got there, I knew that was going to be the case from day one. But when I got there, how do you go from doing DevRel with 40 people, highly specialized people, you have somebody for everything, right? Into trying to do it all yourself. Yes. You can't really do that. And at, at Nexmo, Legator came up with this thing called ARP or Pirate Matrix, which stands for Awareness Acquisition Activation retention revenue product i think that's it referral oh i forgot the not referral so this was a massive thing we were we were doing bits of it in every role and there was a lot of overlap how do you try to do all that by yourself you realize you can't it's impossible to do all of that by yourself right so you try to figure out which of those steps you need in the first year of doing that role. and i i did that i figured out what I needed in my first year to set up a program, I call it ARP or Baby Pirate Matrix. But then I still realized it was a lot of things to do for a single individual. And I couldn't afford to hire 40 people to do this little thing. So I started looking around in the company to see all of the, the things you need to do, like writing documentation, writing blog posts, speaking in public, talking to your users, right? What other functions in that company we're doing a little bit of that. So instead of hiring three more people to try to do it all themselves, I was like, well, there's some people who already have those skills and already do that part of their job. Why don't we just teach them how to speak to developers? And then they can take on that 20% a little bit. And so I try, I try to create a developer relations culture within the organization rather than trying to scale a DevRel team to infinity and beyond. And that worked out very well. I think I managed to make myself just quarterbacking everything in about six months, right? And it meant talking to a lot of people, convincing a lot of people, or just plain out bribing. I think I think the blog was the most successful ever because I I did this limited edition swag that you could only get if you wrote an article for the blog post. Yeah, so I had a steady stream of people writing to write for the blog. Engineers, marketing, even the HR person wrote for the blog because they really wanted that piece of swag. It was a Uniqlo vest, the only, which was branded. The only way you could get that was by, by doing something for DevRel, right? by, by participating. Interesting. So I, this, is a, this has I, been a problem I that I've, I've faced in, in many situations is you, you already have an existing uh, group of, of software developers, engineers in the company, many of whom have no experience with developer relations style activities. Um, and you, it's very difficult to, to actually get any output or engagement. 
Um, it does sound, though, in, in, in Interledger, given the way that you've hired through your community, that you have set yourself up for success by, by having a community to begin with. So possibly people who work at, at Interledger have self-selected a little bit. They're more open to developer relations. I think I think that's uh, that 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 that's very, that's putting it very well because of the way they've come in, right? Uh, not everybody has come in through through our community. Some people just applied on the website or saw us on Twitter or anything like that, which still means they had some engagement with Interledger before. But some people were writing code for Interledger or were participating in our events. So the fact that they were open to community work from the beginning meant that then when they got that Interledger, it was easier, an easier proposition to sell for them to do a little bit of developer relations, right? At at the first at the first company I tried this at, it was a very hard sell. It was literally bribing people. Like, like I said, it was a very hard sell because people didn't get it, people didn't understand, they weren't doing it before. At Interledger, it was a much easier sell because of the type of people that we attracted through our hiring. It was a much, much easier sell. So in Interledger, we have a dedicated technical writing team, we have a dedicated community team, but a lot of the advocacy and awareness bits happen from the developers because they're the best people at it. They're the people who write the code. The people who write the code are the best people to start writing your documentation. Now, they do not output perfect documentation or usable documentation in any way, right? Still developer documentation, but it provides the technical writing team a first draft that they can use, do information architecture on it, polish it for tone and voice, and make polished documentation out of it, instead of having to chase a bunch of engineers to talk to them or try to this black box product and try to figure out how it works, they have a first draft they can work from. So it, it makes their work easier. It allows them to, to perform much better. And the developers, because they do this documentation exercise, right, it helps them structure their thoughts for some other things like public speaking, for example. Exactly. Or exactly. developers speak in public. I want to shout out. I want to shout out to Sabine. She's our engineering lead, and she has amazing presentations. They're technically not part of her job. Practically, if Sabine is listening to this, they're one hundred percent part of her job. She's amazing at it. But it does mean because she's built the software, she's talked about the software, she started writing documentation. She speaks about it in public, and she's much better at it than if. I got the developer advocate who had to talk to Sabine in order to develop a talk to then try and deliver. And halfway through your presentation, when somebody has questions, go, I don't know the answer to that. I'm going to go talk to Sabine and she's going to, I'll get back to you. This way, Sabine's actually there and she has all the answers. She, she delivers it perfectly. And it's not part of a job, right? It's not part of the developer job. But by trying to build this developer relations culture inside, it helps us a lot. Yeah, and I, I can tell you, you know, we speak to a lot of different people doing developer relations in a lot of different companies of different sizes, all sorts of things. Um, what you're doing is quite is quite innovative. Um, you know, a lot of people worry about where the little developer relations team sits, but you're permeating developer relations throughout the culture, which I think is 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 really really interesting. I would love to keep talking about this forever. <laughs> We are coming to the end, very, very sadly. Uh, 
I think I have I have one kind of last question, which is, um, I guess one of the challenges, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, you must have, which is you have this very long adoption cycle, and it's often organizations that use Interledger just given the nature of what you're doing. So does that present a lot of challenges uh, around building a community? Because if I think about my experiences in, in community building, uh, for example, with Node.js, you know, a decade ago, a lot of it was individual developers just deciding to do things. Um, and once quite a lot of them do it, people start publishing interesting stuff. People start using each other's open source and it kind of grows from there. Um, do you have different challenges building a community because of the nature of what you're doing? So because of the nature of what we're doing, we, 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 we are our community strategy and our community thinking, right? Is segmenting people based on the level of involvement and the level of engagement needed in order to participate meaningfully in an outcome. So yeah, for bringing new nodes into the network or bringing new financial institutions on the network, that's a long adoption cycle, but that also means those people are committed. They're not your average community person who just comes in, does a little bit of code, maybe says hi at an event, or maybe uses an Interledger API at one of our partners. Those are people who believe in the mission of the Interledger Foundation and they want to be along for the ride. And we still consider them community, right? It's just a different type of community. You can think about it as a partner or as a supporter community. It's a different type of community that we're building. We also have the community that's easy to access, which is writing some code for us, engaging on our social media, some of the, the, the other levels of engagement, which works very, very similar to most communities out there, right? Most of the node community works in a similar fashion. You're helping build this, you're maybe trying to use this for your little project or for your job or stuff like that. And then we have the, the other set of community, which because we're a nonprofit foundation, we give away money. That is the grant system for us. So we have the, the the people in the grants community, which start out by, oh, I might want to experiment with this technology. I want to see what's possible. Or I'm an artist. I would love for my work to be paid for in a non-Spotify way. And that evolves and grows from, I might dip my, my toes in the intelligent pool to actually there's a, a, a clear and concise need for this to be in my region, in my country. So I'm going to start on a journey to become a financial institution and join the Interledger Network, enable Interledger for my part of the world. And we have a bunch of those. We have a bunch of those in uh, the Global South and South America and Africa. Uh, we're going through Asia with the, with the same concept. So the, the level of community is not a... <laughs> It's not a homogeneous community. And some people might transition from one to the other, right? You'll try to build something and then you'll see, oh, actually I can get some money to try my own project on this. And then that evolves into, I'm <laughs> I'm, I'm a startup now and I'm part of the partners. And there's, there's fluidity through our community, but we have very separate 
ways we talk to each community in, in general because they have different needs, right? So it's basically different communities with different needs and there's some overlap and we treat the overlap especially as well. So, so the community strategy is not, not very cookie cutter. It's kind of, we have to sit down and think about this long and hard to try to figure out how community works. for. Yeah, you're, you're and I don't think we're done. No, no, your particular yeah. context is so interesting. It's, um, it's, it's much broader and deeper than, you know, the normal startup that this has a B2B SaaS offering and an API. Um, I think watch this space. Um, Interledger is, is, as you guys grow, um, I think it's going to be really, really interesting to see how it develops and how you develop the community. Uh, I certainly will be watching. Alex, thank you so much. This has been very interesting, very unexpectedly interesting um, in, in terms of the, the going deeper into what, how you're fitting it all together. Um, I knew you were, I knew Interledger was going to be a little bit different from the start, but uh, this has been fascinating stuff. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Richard. And now that we're at the end, I'm going to do a shameless plug at the very end. Actually, I'm going to do two shameless plugs at the very end. If you're interested in Interledger at all, community.interledger.org should help you get started. That's our forum instance. You can see what other people are doing. We have shout outs and ways for our community to get involved through that. And also, one of the things I haven't talked about is me and Julia do this little newsletter called the Developer Avocados Weekly Newsletter. If you like our, our philosophy around DevRel, Julia's building a DevRel team for Infobib as well. So we're both building DevRel in various different ways at various different companies. We do this newsletter. You should strongly consider uh, subscribing to the newsletter. We try to showcase resources from the past week that would help people level up their DevRel game. It's developeravocados.net. You'll find us on Twitter as well. Highly recommended. I'm a reader. Highly recommended. <laughs> Thank you so much, Alex. Take care. Good luck. Talk to you again soon, I hope. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You can find the transcript of this podcast and any links mentioned on our podcast page at voxgig.com slash podcast. Subscribe for weekly editions where we talk to the people who make the developer community work. For even more, read our newsletter. You can subscribe at voxgig.com slash newsletter or follow our Twitter at voxgig. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.